0: Uh, this is Ed Adams, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. It turns out that snow science is a lot tougher than rocket science.
1: You are tuned into to episode 4.9 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by TAS by MND, an avalanche of solutions. And our good friends at 10 Barrel Brewing drink beer outside with additional support from InterWest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Welcome to February everybody. Well I find myself in the in the thick of the busiest guiding season out in the Ruby Mountains for Ruby Mountain helicopter experience. And we're having a great start to the winter out here. Um, but I'm gonna keep this intro pretty brief because I need to go to bed and, and get some rest for tomorrow's day of hilly skiing. Um, back in late October, I landed in Bozeman, Montana and, uh, and had, a, had some great conversations with all sorts of folks to, out there, both practitioners and researchers. Uh, I found myself doing my first interview with Ed Adams on the campus of MSU. After I, I received a, a great tour of the Sub Zero Lab at Montana State University's, um, I believe, Civil Engineering Building there, and uh, it was it was great to sit down with Ed. You know, he's the one that created essentially the Sub Zero Lab, um, and and he recounts his career, both academically and and some of the other jobs and positions he's held, and the and places that, that those jobs have, have taken him. Um, he started out back in the early 1970s with an English degree and a pair of skis. He found himself at, in Alta, Utah, and, and started mucking around with, with some of the other snow scientists of the time uh, before he found himself going back to school at Montana State, and he's, he's called Bozeman home since then. Um, so I know you're going to enjoy this episode uh, when we sit down with Ed Adams. Here we go. Welcome to the show, Ed. Thanks for making the time.
0: Well, thanks for um, inviting me. It's really, a, really an honor. Thank you.
1: Yeah, it's great to be in Bozeman on this chilly, chilly October morning. It is getting pretty cold for Halloween. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> agreed. Um, Ed, I was hoping you could introduce yourself who is ed adams where did he come from and okay, where yeah, has he been kind of the, the history of ed adams
0: huh? yeah okay well i was born in uh grew up in on south shore of long island in new york just outside the city i went to college down in maryland not too far from washington dc and down there i um Got a job my senior year working at a, a, uh, a little ski area that had night skiing and stuff. So I, I uh, was loading chairs and just got kind of interested. And and um, when it came time to graduate with no apparent plan, I, uh, a friend of mine said, why don't we go up to Vermont and go where well, there's a real mountain and see if we can ski. So I went up there with this friend of mine, went up to Sugarbush, and, and um, spent part of the year learning to ski. Then I broke my leg. And um, not a bad break, but enough to... And the season decided that that one didn't count. So uh, this was my before I started my real life job, I was going to do that. and So I decided that we ought to go out to west where there was more snow, so moved out to Alta, Utah. And that was in uh, the season we moved out there was 1973. And um, if you've looked at the Avalanche Review, they had a, a retrospective on that particular season. Um, so I got there into this middle of this huge avalanche cycle. A lodge got hit. Cars were uh, swept out of the parking lot into the ski area. It was pretty crazy. And uh, so that piqued my interest. And um, so I, I, I was working it out to bartending, waiting tables, that kind of thing. And um, I was doing that for a few years. I got into backcountry skiing. And back then the equipment was pretty primitive. <laughs> you know, we were getting used Army skins and Terrible equipment, but I was getting the backcountry and I was trying not to kill myself. And and um, I went to Rod Newcomb's first American Avalanche Institute course. Actually, uh, Reed Bonson and I went up and up at Jackson and went to that. And that kind of got me more interested. And and um, so moving down the line, another year or so went by, and um, I was kind of thinking I'd go into the ski patrol direction. And and it I would, would have been interesting if I had. Life would have been different, but probably just this. Just as good. Um, and then um, Bill Harrison out of the uh, Crell the Cold Region Research and Engineering Laboratory, which is a US Army facility out of um, New Hampshire, out of Hanover. And um, they came out and they were setting up an experiment up in Albion Basin. So I sort of went up and I was working with them a little bit, digging holes and just trying to figure it out. And um, lo and behold, they hired me the following season. I went back and worked in Hanover for um, Part of the summer they sort of taught me how to do some of the instruments you know with my English degree I was inept at everything and, and I went up and, and uh, moved up to the site and they would come out leave the leave all the equipment and they'd go back and I was I broke everything you know <laughs> but it was it was a good season you know and and um, so Bill said you know if you're really going to do this you ought to, um, you ought to go back to school and, and sort of learn how to do it right you know and, and he said, uh, MSU, Montana State, is the place to go. And he said, and uh, Bob Brown is the guy to go see. So I um, actually came up here with Bill and, and got introduced to Bob and then met Ted Lang and, and John Montaigne and some folks. And, and um, sort of that's how I ended up back in school. So I, obviously with my English degree, I, and uh, Bob Brown is engineering mechanics, which was a far cry from English. and. So I basically had to start over, you know, I just went back and, and um, it was really great. Um, Bob Brown got together with the folks over in Earth Sciences and I wasn't really interested in being a traditional engineer. And they put together a program tailored to do snow mechanics and uh, so I had earth science classes and I had um, engineering classes and they sort of melted that together and made a program for me, but since there was no specific snow program, that degree actually, I got a degree in um, geophysics is what the, the umbrella that it fit under and, and uh, John Montaigne, who a lot of people have heard of, um, he was my advisor. From the engineering department? No, he was in uh, earth sciences. In earth John, Science. John yeah. was a geologist. Okay. So um, I got my first degree out of earth sciences at, at MSU. And then um, my graduate, I went to, I got a master's in engineering mechanics and a Ph.D. in mechanical engineering. And I was working with Bob Brown for that. Okay. Okay, so that's kind of how I got back into school. And, <laughs> and it, was, it, was quite, it was quite an abrupt change, though, coming up from ELTA with my skis on my English degree
1: and suddenly be in a calculus class. It was kind of a slap in the head. <laughs> sure. Well, did you, I'm sure you found some time to ski around here.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. I did. And um, so, and, and so you know, in the undergraduate, actually, I spent a lot of time, you know, just skiing, and I didn't really do any – I did some research on the side kind of stuff, you know. But, but um, I was just trying to get through classes and everything. And when I um, got into the graduate program, then um, – we started doing a lot of lot of uh, field work a lot of which is what most people who want to get into snow science want to have a, a strong component of field work and um, so we did that mostly out of the bridgers you know we, we we worked north of Bridger Bowl, which is where most of our field work was and um
1: yeah so so that's kind of how that came and and uh what was your what was your graduate research what was that based on
0: yeah you know it was it was pretty much my whole career was work well. The essence of it has been in, in snow metamorphism, snow structure, snow stability, that part of it. I've done some work in, in a little bit with avalanche dynamics playing around, but it wasn't really a major focus. Um, but yeah, so we, we worked up um, at Bridger Bowl. It was really nice at the time. because. Um, the, the, the boundaries, the air, ski area boundaries were all closed back then and we had, we were, we were doing science so we had permission and we could go over to Butte and get explosives um, for work so we, we always car- skied around in the backcountry with explosives mm-hmm. and um, we used to drop charges in various places and see what we thought was going on and we kind of figured out the area pretty well just on our own in the backcountry and, and that, that was kind of a, a, a fun time you know. and uh, we were kind of alone back then. so anymore we it's just very busy back there anymore it wasn't it wasn't at the time sure so anyway so back to my uh, general career i guess i so i came out to msu and i went through and got those degrees and then i graduated right so I, now i'm done what do i do again and um i got a job um at michigan tech michigan technological university in houghton michigan uh, which is right uh, on the upper peninsula of Michigan, and it's a peninsula off the upper peninsula of Michigan that sits in Lake Superior, and it gets the most snow anywhere east of the Rockies. Hmm. It's a massive amount of snow. It snows every day. It literally wow. snows every day in the winter for, for three months I, I worked there. I actually, I, I, um, I, I taught some classes there, but I, I, I did research, and I started um, the Institute for Snow Research at at Michigan Tech and and uh, I kind of laughed at the time because there's a Paul Simon thing let's get together and call ourselves an institute and I was the institute for a time I was it you know and and, but that changed. They got some more people in, and we got some more grants in, and and we built it, and and the the things. That, and actually, it's still going, and um, so that that's still a component that's ongoing. And they do work all over the world now, and they work down the Antarctic, and they they work in uh, down in Yellowstone. They've been working down there, so that that's done pretty well too. But anyway, that I did that. Um, For a time, and it's a beautiful spot, but it wasn't the mountains. You know, it wasn't really where I wanted to be. I did work. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about. uh, I learned a lot about grant writing. I learned a lot about finding money. It was a soft money position, so to survive, I had to. I had to find money, and uh, I I learned a lot. And then I, the work that we were doing um, was not avalanche related, obviously, and uh, so. uh, I got money. We worked on um, with the highway department, looking at chemical deicing and, and highway problems and that sort of thing. I worked on snow roads. Snowmobiling is a big deal up there, mm-hmm. and I, so is cross country skiing. But I worked on snowmobile roads up there and, and did some pretty interesting stuff. So I learned a lot about the structure and playing with the snow, and uh, so on, on a different in a different way than I had been in, in just in the mountains, you know. And um, but then um, lo and behold, Bob Brown. Became um, took over a position as the Dean of the Graduate School and um, the department contacted me and asked, asked me if I was interested in coming back. And uh, Michigan Tech was a great place and nice, but it wasn't really where I wanted to end, you know? And um, so my wife and I, you know, loaded up the car and came back, you know? And, and so uh, essentially I've been here ever since. And. And uh, I came in as, a, as a, um, an adjunct position, because in academia, uh, there's got to be a, a, a explicit position available, and Bob Brown didn't vacate that position when he took over as dean, so there wasn't an actual um, position. But I approached it as a regular tenured faculty member, and I put in grants, and I managed to get funding, and I managed to run grad students and teach classes, and I did all the things that were required for a, um, a faculty position. And then when Bob finally did relinquish that position, opened up, I applied for it and um, was able to get it. So uh, so I've been kind of doing that. So I've run through the whole spectrum from graduate student through adjunct, through associate assistant and, and
1: uh, full professor. And-, and so when you came back from Michigan, back to Montana State, you became an adjunct professor. And how did the the graduate program grow once that happened. Once you came back here, how did that that program okay, develop? Okay, so
0: so I came back and um, and Bob Brown had also had some graduate students, you know, sort of right with and after me, and there was kind of a, a flux of students at, at that point. And then he came on, I came on, and I tried to continue the program. So I started writing grants, got some grants. Um, got grad students, uh, worked with grad students, and I just started trying to fill the role. And um, my, my mission, actually, when I one of the things I wanted to be sure is if I managed to get through the, and stay, and I wanted to be sure that when I left this program, it was in as good a shape when I left as it was when I started. So that was always kind of on my mind. I don't want to let this this international program that these guys have established down, you know. Mm-hmm. So so I, I tried to do that. You know, it's kind of where I continued along the line. So I was I managed to um I managed to to do that I think. I, I uh I don't think I ever made any huge, you know, uh, curing cancer type um discoveries. But but I do think that uh in my career I um I always try to do honest, you know, research. I always tried to you know, make it somewhat useful and relevant. Some of it may have been a little theoretical and esoteric, and some of it applied. and And I tried to meld those two things together. But I, but I, I did want to try to keep on. Uh, MSU's always had a, a reputation for uh, its strength has been in, in the snow mechanics, kind of the physics side of it, and the earth science has also had a very strong uh, component. Um, and so I wanted to keep that alive. And that's kind of kind of how I've sort of progressed my career. And I've and I've tried to. Um, And the writing, you know, proposals for avalanches and trying to get funding for avalanches is really difficult in the U.S. It's a very, very poorly funded, um, you know, European, the Swiss, the Japanese, uh, the French. There's there's much more emphasis on avalanches as a problem. And um, so a lot of the um, work that we were able to do is is writing grants that would – would uh cover several bases you know so so for instance i did work on um looking at the energy balance and snow melt and and uh, chemical distribution and icing on highways looking at the energy balance atmospheric energy balance and how that affected road temperature and i did some modeling and i worked with some models that were developed and did some work in that area but always with the eye of how does that affect metamorphism how does that so so i i've tried to um make a pathway through the career um, and not always having, you know, the funding directly in avalanches, but I was always working on processes that applied to avalanches because that was my interest, and so the metamorphism and all kind of worked, and I I did grants in that way. I've done a bunch of different kinds of things, and some of them where I actually uh, Explicitly stated this is avalanche research and mm-hmm. you know, we have other things that are applied to it like uh, Snowmelt hydrology or energy balance of you know for those kind of things But
1: you know, so I, I've managed to get through doing that and it's it's been great. It's been a, it was a really fun career you mean to say the ski patrollers and, and avalanche professionals don't keep the lights on in here <laughs> <laughs> yeah they don't <laughs> yeah we, we try to keep but a
0: lot of our fundings coming from uh, things like National Science Foundation Yeah. Uh, the Army Research Office has done some. Uh, Kevin's working with NASA right at the moment. Um, so there's, there's various agencies, you know. But, but NSF has not had a big, National Science Foundation has not had a big interest in avalanches. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I've literally gone back and, because um, I've been on committees and stuff, and, and, and say, well, why not? And it just doesn't fit in anything very well, you know. And there's just not the right organizations. That, so if, if you're working in the field, you have to be creative. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it's doable, you know, it's totally doable. Sure.
1: So one of the things you've done throughout your career is develop the Sub-Zero Research Laboratory. Maybe you could talk about what that is and, and how it came about and, and why.
0: Uh, let's see, I guess where it started when I first came here, there was basically uh, a cold lab, <laughs> one room, a cold freezer and uh, one material testing machine. and you know, some thermocouples and stuff. And, and, um, but it was, it was not very large at the time, um, but still Bob and Ted Lang had done some great work in there. And um, so then over time um, we developed, I got another cold room in that we got that was sort of a standard um, uh, meat locker, you know, uh, restaurant kind of refrigerator. And sort of that sort of tweaked it a little bit further and we got a little bit larger, got a little more space. And then um, I had a follow-on one, and this was through um, highway research money and stuff, but I built the first, um, I don't I say built. I, I sort of specked out the first. Um, lab that i think for 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 scientific work that uh, really specifically tailored to it so we could run it down to minus 60 degrees um i had a a ceiling temperature independent from the room temperature had like glove box kind of so you could reach in and and do experiments without entering the room and uh put a solar lamp in there so we could look at the influence of that so that we built on that and we we got along with that for quite a while we got a very uh, a new, at the time, a, a CT scanner. And I think it's one of the first ones, Bob Brown actually got the money for doing that. And, um, and I think it was about the first, maybe the Japanese may have had one just prior for doing um, CT work on snow. So it worked with that. Um, yeah, Chris Lundy did some work with that back, people might know Chris. Um, and so we had that. And then in about 06, maybe 07, we we're in there. Uh, John Priskew and I um, got together and worked on a proposal to build a facility. And the uh, concept behind it was, um, we both had our own interests. Uh, John does a lot of work with uh, microbial ecology in the polar climates and in high altitude environments. So he does all of his works in the cold. And obviously all of mine has been in, in snow and, and working on the Antarctic stuff. I was working on lake ice and some other things. and and. Um, so we, we put together this proposal to NSF that we got funded and and also the Murdoch charitable Trust and we got you know several millions of dollars in order to do that the university kicked in some money to back it up and and so we built it and then the next one I, we tried to design it and I went through and so what would be some utility we could have that would be broader than just our interests and, and bring in a larger community both across campus and Across the planet if you like you know and and um, so I built um, sort of a my first design was to to, to redo that environmental chamber that we had but to build another one and and since we'd learned a few things about that one make this one a little a little better yet and we built that one and then certainly a sample preparation room so we could go from room to room without changing temperature we had uh, what we called a hydrodynamics room where um, we could run uh, water, liquid water through the cold room, controlling temperature, look at freezing processes and that sort of stuff. And the idea there was to look at streams and, and uh, wetlands and, and that sort of thing at a low temperature environment. Um, that one it turned out uh, to be kind of interesting because what, what I hadn't anticipated it originally, but um, since we had water running through this room or had the uh, option to have water running through this room what uh, uh we did was we reconfigured it and built a snowmaking machine in there if you, if you like and and we evaporated this water and could condense it on some nuclei and and we could actually make snow now um, and controlling the, the temperature we could look to some degree at what kind, know, a needle or a dendrite or what kind of uh, structure could we, and we so we could actually make atmospheric representative snow and then take that and put it in and then start looking at metamorphism of that or take it and, and uh, perhaps pulverize it and use it. But we had now snow that we could reproduce so experiment to experiment rather than grabbing it from the field and bringing it in, which we still do but, but we, we ha- now had a representative one, plus we could work year-round making snow. So we used the environmental, the, the hydrodynamic chamber, and we turned that into a snowmaking. It's still available for doing hydrodynamics, but right now we're mostly using it to make snow. We built a, um, a low-temperature sub-zero, a low-temperature a low temperature cold room, a clean room, which uh, what that does, it's just, a whole bunch of filters in there we try to make that air as clean as we can and a lot of that is was really for the microbial work for the antarctic work dust on snow those kind of things we wanted to be sure our environment was clean very precise stuff we were looking at um, you know just contamination and and you know an old antarctic ice you know it, so you really want to be careful so that one we built uh oh we have another one that's a it's a structural lab so we can look at mechanical structures um so it's, it's got a strong floor it's called so it's 18 inches of steel reinforced concrete that you can bolt uh frames to it and then load them and break things you know and look them. you know we've, well, we've done things in there like breaking uh glulam beams that you know how do they respond at minus 40 you know mm. and, and things like that How do different materials so if you want to make concrete if you want to look at how do they work at low temperature so that kind of stuff so uh, what else do we have we have microscopes low temperature microscopes and then once we got the room, the system kind of going. Um, then we wrote some grants. Dan Miller was heavily involved in this and in, in uh, trying to get a uh, a CT scanner, a new CT scanner. The old one had kind of, kind of flaked out on us, and um, this new one is a state-of-the-art CT scan, which you put in, so we have that. And Kevin's just gotten a new, you know, wind tunnel in there. So we have all sorts of instruments, and this whole lab is kind of an ongoing process. We keep building on it, and these guys that are taking over, they're continuing to build on it. It's getting better.
1: And so just getting a tour from you this this morning is very evident that it's not just for looking at snow grains, which I think in my head I oversimplified it to that, but it sounds like it's it's for materials engineering and for, for anything, any sort of research that's going on where you need to, um, introduce some cold environment oh,
0: yeah we we've we've worked with um, people who are building new instruments um on campus and want to know how they would work at a low temperature mm-hmm. so we take them and we can put them through cycles we've looked at um we've had people from physiology come over and they've they've put people how do you how do you respond how, how does the human body respond at, at at low temperature? so they they've had people who had copd and put them in there and they've had people who are you know uh, athletes you know spinning up and and staying in there for a couple of hours trying to keep the co2 down to the cauldron it was one interesting one they were in there running and they blew that they cut it down we had to refilter that a little bit but yeah so we have all sorts of things that that we can do in there we test um for the highway stuff still there's you know chemical de-icing tests in there uh friction on frozen pavement for different tires there's all those kind of things. If you could think about something that you might, and that's kind of how we wanted it to be. We wanted people to come across campus and use it. And also we've had some, you know, industrial people come in and, and do some tests. We've had NASA in looking for things they're interested in, in looking to so the cold room, looking at how they might deal with some of the meteorites that they were getting ready to collect. And So we've had just a myriad of things in there and it's, it's kind of cool to see it all kind of happen. And you were just downstairs, you could see it's pretty busy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, ed i was hoping you could talk about the implications of the ct scanner and what you all use that for in research
0: okay well the ct scanner is um i think most people know what a ct scanner is and you know, we, we've um got one that's uh it's a little different from what we might see in a um in, in the medical realm where the the, the 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 scanner goes around you we have now we put a sample in and we have the sample spin and and we can then look at the structure of it and reconstruct so for instance, surface ore, we get really beautiful images of surface ore and you can see them in three dimensions. You can spec them out, you know what they look like, rather than, you know, classically, we would grab a, on a card, we'd put snow down and we'd look at it and try to say, what do we have there? Well, now we have it in three dimensions and we can look at it, we can spin it, we can turn it upside down and look at it. What else we can do, we can take that, since now it's digitized, we can take that and we can drop that into codes, like finite element codes, which are used to look at structural, properties, you know, how do things break, how do they fail, how do they deform. And we can take those, so now we can take that and digitally put in the structure into that. So, so it allows us to do those kind of things where we can look at, at studying of the, of the physical processes of the actual structure, not some, um, you know, our mind contrived, <laughs> you know, so, so it's been really useful for that. And just the imaging, being able to see it is really useful.
1: Mm-hmm. Ed, what would you say, what of your research are you most proud of and why?
0: Yeah, well, you know, like I think I said earlier, I, I, I wish I could say I had that cured cancer moment, but uh, I can't say that I did. But I, I do, I do think I've, um, I've I've worked in snow mechanics and I've worked in the metamorphism and I and I hope I hope that people would agree that I've I, I've sort of moved that along and I've added you know, my contribution to it, you know, and I've I, I've pushed it in a few different directions and and helped look at it. So I think I've done that and. And uh, with that said, I uh, was thinking about the um, story with Bob Brown. When, when the, the way that Earth Sciences and engineering became sort of became this, this uh, dual ca- across campus um, system was Charles Bradley and just to say who Charles, Charles Bradley and John Montaigne had uh, come out of the 10th Mountain Division in World War II and then they were both in the Earth Sciences Department and they were studying snow and avalanches and um, Charles came and got a hold of Bob Brown, who had come out of the aerospace industry. He worked with Lockheed and, and, uh, and he was a theoretical, very theoretical, um, and so asked him if he could get involved, maybe add a new perspective to what they were doing. And uh, so Bob talked to Ted Lang, who's also come out of aerospace with, uh, he was out of Caltech and, and uh, Jet Propulsion Lab. And, and Apparently, Ted said to Bob, well, let's get this avalanche problem done so we can get back to some real science, you know. <laughs> and uh, so Bob Brown, as the story goes anyway, Bob Brown went on for a while, finished a distinguished career about when he was getting ready to leave. He's, he, uh, he said, you know, it turns out that snow science is a lot tougher than rocket science, you know. Cause, and what he was really referring to there was the fact that it's just a moving it's a shape shifter you know it's changing structure all the time it's very very um very very uh subject to temperature to density to grain type to it's very very complicated material and it's always changing you know on the scale of hours to days you have a different literally a different material if we were to look at say this table that we're sitting at here that has certain material properties the modulus of elasticity it's got a thermal conductivity it's got something we can do something with with snow if I came back here tomorrow and this was snow and it was sitting outside of the natural environment it would probably be a different material and so the, the whatever model I come up with wouldn't exactly work. So that's kind of what it's referring to. It's, it's always moving. And I, I think it was Malcolm Miller who made some comment that if you could come up with a really over, overarching constitutive, so describing the properties of a material for snow given in, in its natural environment, you know, not some e- exotic, you know, that you would have a, a, a constitutive law for basically all materials because it just changes all the time, and it's that's why it's it's uh it, it's so interesting and
1: it's so frustrating. <laughs> mm. <laughs> what would you say your your favorite bit of field research has been? We've talked a bit about the sub-zero lab. You strike me as somebody who enjoys being outside. Yeah. Well, I, well, one really particularly interesting
0: one, which is uh, we did a lot. Like I, I think I mentioned earlier, we did a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And grad school and stuff and and after where we went out and threw a lot of explosives around and played and dug a lot of holes and you know just played around on our own little playground out back that was all sort of roped off for us and um, and in that process we we, we um, saw some slopes that were you know would go pretty regularly, some that wouldn't go and kind of you know, we had an assessment and And uh, we had one that we eventually ended up calling revolving door, because it was one of these slopes, moderate sized, you know, sort of scoped out in the trees, but a pretty good sized avalanche, not huge. Um, You know, a few meters of snow would come down. It was was fairly, you know, it was real. And um, anyway, we'd knock that out, and we we could do that pretty regularly. So I sort of we just sort of discovered that, and then uh, we happened to have a a French. practitioner over, I don't know, Laplan, I think, I forget his name, and I think Rand Decker had, had sort of got him to come over and visit us, and they had been working with aerial bomb trams, and um, but in the U.S., they, they were they hadn't caught on yet. They weren't here, so we set up what I believe to be the first aerial bomb tram in North America on that little avalanche path. We just strung a string across, put some pulleys on it, and slung some slopes out, and we're looking at the influence of, uh, you know, suspended uh, explosives above the snow as opposed to dropping them in the snow, and sort of thing and so we sort of had that going and uh, so that that was kind of fun and then after that so that was in in grad school then we went I was back at Michigan Tech and when I came back to Montana I was all amped up I had I had to do some field working you know and so um, Jim Denton Scott Schmidt and I uh, were out sort of rooting around that area that that we had been I'd been sort of knew pretty well from from the back from grad school and um, it was in the summer, actually, and we noticed that in the middle of that one slope revolving door, there was a great big rock, and we started musing, "Well, you know what? I wonder if we could just get in behind that thing and have the avalanche run over at the top, and we'd be in the middle of the avalanche path." And so um, we did that. <laughs> we we uh, just basically, you know, we we just bolted. Uh, plywood to the back of this rock and and we set instruments out along the ground and put up posts and, and then never got very good funding for it because it's always hard to get but but we worked on that quite a bit and, and uh, it was really fun so we set that up and and we'd have these avalanches and we could we, we would be inside you know with computers and and wires heading out and and um we, we used that same bomb trim that we had had set up years before and we used that so we had an explosive we had an initiation so we were pretty well set up to do it and um so we did that for a while and and then at some point um it someone caught note of it and uh National Geographic Adventure got a hold of us, and and they came up, oh, NOVA came up, and NOVA um, PBS came up, and and they filmed it, and I forget the sequence, and then I guess it was, uh, and then I guess National Geographic sort of picked up on that, you know, and they thought we were these hairballs, you know, which we really weren't. The first time we were in there, we were kinda, you know, we clipped ourselves in and did all that, but once we kind of got familiar with it, it wasn't quite as, as dramatic as it, as it might have appeared, you know. But it was the, the first few times were a little dicey, you know. And, and um, so anyway, so National Geographic Adventure picked up on it, and they did an article. And then, then from that, they, uh, <laughs> Good Morning America got a hold of it, and they called me up and said, hey, could you fly out here in a day or so? And, so I went out with National Geographic and Good Morning America and did makeup and the whole thing. It was really a trip, you know. <laughs> so I went out and I did my Good Morning America interview with people, speer, you know, peering in from the windows from the outside, <laughs> waving the whole thing, you know. How cool. Charlie Gibson was the, the guy who did it, and uh, so anyway, then and then next thing, People Magazine comes up, and so I did a little piece, and it was all ridiculous, right? But it was really fun, you know. It's kind of fun to do, and. But but on a serious side, that kind of stuff, as much as it seems a little, you know, what, what are you doing? It's really good to get it out the public to have so much, like what you're doing with this interview. Mm-hmm. People are going to, wow, these people are doing stuff, you know, and, and – um, so we got some more stuff out you know New York Times did articles, we did you know a lot of news articles for so we became kind of you know that's kind of got that into that part and, and so getting things out to the public and that's part of National Science Foundation is really interested in that the science you do can't live in your lab downstairs it doesn't you know or, or within a little little enclave of scientists who are like you know calculating something you want to get it out so people know that you're doing that it's worthwhile you know and so we tried to do that a bit, and, and we did, and we, uh, a really interesting one we have is a, an exhibit in the, um, the um, Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, which is a major museum and I worked with them for well, several years trying to put together the project and, and they put us together in this, it's, it's great, it's a great thing, if you ever get a chance to see it, not just the snow part, but this whole, uh, it's called science storms. They have Tesla coils exploding in the room and it's just a great thing. But, but so we're kind of grouped with the, uh, some of the people doing mass movement kind of stuff and and uh, so that's pretty cool we got that out and a lot of people have seen that i still get emails hey i saw you on this thing and so that's kind of cool and so we're trying to get that out and that's all part of part of our what we do you know and some of it seems kind of people magazine good lord i had a friend who said you know i bought that i was really embarrassed to have to pick that up i said no this is great you know (laughs) so uh, but anyway that's kind of interesting you said something on the sort of what we've done that's kind of interesting it's kind of a curious
1: system of things so as you were doing some of this field research and, and kind of Nova and National Geographic got got a hold of what you guys were doing, what was it like involving them in the production of this field research?
0: Well, you know, Nova or or any of these companies, and, and you know, we've we've had quite a few people, you know, through National Geographic Discovery and a bunch of these the history channel and have done it. It's always interesting to have the media kind of get involved and, and what they perceive as what you can do and and um, how does that happen i mean for instance they'll you know they'll want to schedule an avalanche for like a week in february or something it's like you know I, and they don't they don't ever want just a little avalanche they want some big thing but but the one we did for nova um they came in and they were probably were the first ones we really did um uh that was kind of, of that of that stature i guess and um they uh wanted they, they knew about the avalanche shed and so they were kind of all over that and we basically had to carry a lot of their equipment up and stuff. And they, they just weren't, you know, as adept as they might have been. But they were good people. They were trying real hard. But but anyway, going across, and we took them out to our, our – uh, going out to the research site. And this is that revo- revolving door site that I was talking about. And and uh, so we we got out to where we had to start down and where we were going through some avalanche paths. So we had to do the – you know, we were crossing one at a time, doing all the stuff. And, and so um, Scott Schmidt, I think, went out first, and he skied over to a, to a safe – spot by a little island of trees and and um, we we'd skied this thing a lot we were pretty comfortable with the snowpack and but put him over there and but you know gave him the gave the uh, nova folks the the whole spiel about how you know you have to you know we were trying to explain to them how to move about in avalanche terrain and go to here as i recall it was quite a few years ago but we trying to give that spiel and um, so he did this whole thing about how it's dangerous and all that stuff and did that and then um, I bet we did, and then um, it, it was just really nice, nice snow, and Chris Lundy was a grad student, and uh, I said, Chris, why don't you go first, you know, and I just giving him the the, the, the open line, you know, and, and he goes skiing down, and that was fine, and we did we did our little thing, and did an avalanche for him, and, and came back, well, <laughs> they did the, uh, the, um, the, 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 Whatever you call it, the opening or the uh, uh, down at the Emerson Center in Bozeman, and so all the you know bunch a bunch of people. Carl Berkland was in it, and and uh, all the all the local gang, you know, because MSU. I mean, Bozeman's really good. It's got the Avalanche Center. It's got MSU. It's got all the ski areas, and and we really are a tight group. I mean, it's really. That's really part of why MSU works as well as it does with the avalanche thing, just that interaction, kind of an interjection there. But, but anyway, so everyone's in that, They're watching this movie, you know, and, and it's all kind of fun, and they're doing this. Well, they get to this scene where we're going out to the avalanche site, you know, we're standing above this avalanche path, and then they run the bit. I think, about, about how dangerous it is, and you've got to, you know, Scott's over there by the tree, We do one at a time, and so you really want to be careful going. Then they cut immediately to me, taking my ski pole and talking to my graduate student, Chris, and going, you go first. And the way (laughs) it came out, the entire audience just exploded. They just exploded, you know? And everyone's laughing and stuff. And and after this thing's all over, they go, They really said, "Well, what were they laughing at?" I said, "Well, you know, you made me look like the Cowardly Mountaineer." You know, go. You know, it was really funny. It was really. Anyway, that's a side story that has no relevance to anything. You go first. You be the probe. (laughs) (laughs) What's gone on that that sort of startled me a time or two? I think back was decades ago now, but um, I was out. uh, About three of us were out on uh, um, looking at uh, just skiing, just backcountry skiing, and. um, Went out on a slope, we did our snow pit. We had already skied a couple of runs, you know, and, and we hiked up and there was this great big, pretty, pretty perfect avalanche slope, right? And um, so we said, it looked like good thing to ski. We did our snow pit, everything seemed pretty good. And, And I hiked out, and I remember this, you know, I've had a few other things, but this one just struck me because I I, I hiked across, and there was a couloir coming into it from the cliff band above it, and I was just hiking. I didn't plan on skiing the couloir. I just wanted to go up and see if it could be skied or if somebody could ski it, whether it's me or not. I had no intention of skiing it. And so I hiked out under it, and just when I did a kick turn, I heard this sound that I I, I thought was a plane going overhead. I just... (laughs) And I looked nothing up, you know, I looked down and there's fractures all around me, nothing moved. But I'm on a big avalanche slope, right? And I'm like, this is no good, you know? And so I, Bob Brown was, you know, he, I'm looking back at where I had come in and he was still waiting, he was keeping his eye on me. And so I just tucked my hood in and felt it up. And I said, keep your eye on me, I'm coming back, you know, and came across and nothing happened. But it really made me think, and I've never forgotten that, is that we thought we had done everything kind of by the book but what I didn't really um, we didn't a, a properly account for was we were trying to do our pit in a place that was representative but safe right? Sometimes those are hard to you know reconcile and w- what it was was the trees were too close and we weren't getting the same radiation profile where we did our pit that we were on the seemingly similar slope you know and and that sort of struck me as real and, it, and um, With with regard to that radiation, some of the work I said, I think I said earlier, we did looking at energy balance on highways, and I transferred that to the avalanche problem and stuff, was um, um, Mark Staples, who's head of the um, uh, Utah uh, uh, site now, the Utah uh, Forecast Center, and he was a grad student of mine, and and we were working on this particular problem, the radiation balance and metamorphism and stuff, and he came in, and he was, I think it was after he was, he may have not even been a student, he might have been working at the forecast center uh, at that point. And he came in. He was talking about a, a particular thing, and he was. And it was really, uh, it really. I was really glad to see. He said, "You know, I was looking around, and I was looking at where the trees, were, the shadows were, and the rocks." And he was starting to look because radiation is really a hard one to get your head around. You mm-hmm. know, we've got long-wave radiation, short-wave radiation. The sun is kind of easy to see, but the, the the different temperatures moving back and forth between different surfaces is not so. And Mark said, I was looking at that. It was really cool. He was, like, interpreting. He was taking the stuff that we were doing, you know, that was on a computer, basically, and trying to map it. And he was all processed in his head now, you know. And that was really cool. And I, I'm, So I, those kind of things, I think, when we, we take some of this more esoteric-looking science, it really translates. But you, sometimes you've got to figure out how to make that happen. So anyway, that's just sort of a, a side thing on the radiation problem that just sort of spun up in my head that, that, that all Makes sense, you know. So once you start noticing these things, you just notice them. You know, what I mean, you just start looking for different things, and sometimes we get
1: there from different, different ways. But absolutely, Ed. Maybe you could expand on on radiation a little bit. What I don't, I can't think of anybody else better to <laughs> explain kind of long, short wave radiation than yeah. Ed, you know,
0: um, so so essentially the two radiation that we care about are, are, are in specific wavelengths, uh, the big ones for as far as the uh, snow temperature. And um, so we have solar radiation or shortwave radiation. So anyway, a, a shorter wave band and uh, the visible light plus a little bit. But anyway, um, that's what you see coming in from the sky, right? From the sun. And that comes in and that come in, that can come in as either diffuse if it's reflected by some clouds or direct from the sun. And So you sort of have to count for those kind of things. But that one is kind of easier one to perceive because you got a shadow you got a tree in the way you got a cliff in the way or you don't and you got a shadow and a nut shadow and you can feel that difference just stepping in and out it's very very apparent and so that's the shortwave radiation part and 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 that will shortwave radiation now if you think about um Ice, which snow is ice, it looks white. The, uh, the the reason that it's white is that all those all those angles in the little crystals are re- reflecting differently, so it's it's scattering that light and it appears white. But the but the the ice itself is actually quite transparent in the visible range so shortwave radiation will actually penetrate into the snow and it will give some heating subsurface and you know it attenuates as it goes down and it's it's wavelength dependent from red to blue and all that but but anyway that's the easier one to kind of get your head around i think in general the more the harder one is um the long wave or, or 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 the infrared radiation the near infrared and what that is that's temperature related so if if uh, we're sitting in a room each one of these walls has a a specific temperature and i have a particular temperature and i'm exchanging with you we're exchanging thermal energy uh uh, radiation and which translates to the thermal energy, and with all those things. So we're getting this, um, this sucks snucks if it's cold, it's gonna pull that thermal energy out of us. It. If it's warmer, it's gonna put it back in. So where that's relevant as far as what we're thinking about as far as the temperature of the snowpack, because remember, snow, snow is really driven by the temperature and the temperature gradient, right? The difference in temperature over some distance. And so if we have a cold, cold, clear sky, and we're all aware of this, we get frozen dew or surface whore we get, that's the fact that we're sucking all this, this energy out of the snowpack and snow is essentially, and I, and I use this in talks a lot, but snow, I, I always ask people, um, you know, describe snow and they always say it's cold and white. And I like to say well it's it's actually a warm material from an engineering perspective because it's so close to the melting phase that it deforms easily and stuff it acts like a, a a material that would be very warm. So if I take metal, I heat it up enough i can I can actually move that. it's going to flow. Snow is kind of warm in that regard, so it, from an engineering perspective, it's warm, and it's a black body in the infrared. so it's essentially a black, it's not white and cold, it's warm and black, sort of. You know. It just doesn't to catch your attention. And so anyway, it's a black body. So it's radiating out, generally, to a cold sky. But if we have a bunch of cloud cover and it's warmer, that can reverse. So it has to do with that temperature difference. So what's affecting that surface temperature? And the infrared only affects pretty much at the surface, very, very shallow, you know, um, it, it conducts down from there, but basically at the surface. So you, you've got these two things, so on on a, a warm spring day with a cold sky, you might have shortwave radiation that's penetrating and adding heat, where at the surface you're going to have a cold surface that's sucking that heat out. Now you have a massive temperature gradient right at the surface. And we've looked at that, and we've done this in the lab, and that's that's one of the reasons I put lamp in the ceiling and put a cold ceiling in, was to try to replicate these kind of processes. So those are two very relevant, and I, and I, and I think they're hard to get your head around, particularly the long wave, I think, but Trees are gonna be a different temperature than the snow. So the fact that they're not shadowing it, they still are influencing it because if, if, if the sun is hitting that tree and warming it up and the snow is colder, I've got this radiation exchange between the surface and the snow, so it can go either way. So it's it may be sucking out to the cold sky, but heating it up from the, from the warm trees. And so you've got to try to put all that together. So with the models and stuff that we work with, we try to incorporate all that. And you know, with, with some success, but it's really, it's hard then to take that now, even if we get the proper temperature profiles, how does the metamorphism happen? Now we've got a whole nother end. So we've taken it from, you know, if I'm talking about heating up a highway, I've, I've got a, a substance that's pretty much the highway is gonna be the highway. You know, it's not changing properties, but now the snow is changing properties as a result of this energy balance. And so we're trying to deal with all of that all the time. So
1: it's great fun, but it's, all, it's awfully confusing. That was a good explanation, and i was wondering what is the best way to take a surface temperature of snow can we use a regular dial stem (sighs) thermometer?
0: yeah it's really it's difficult um probably a non-contact you know some sort of infrared is Mm -hmm. is probably the best way to get it Um, a dial stem or any kind of thermocouple they're difficult it's measuring snow temperature or ice temperature we had the same trouble with working the antarctic trying to measure things is you're putting something in there that's going to be absorbing the solar energy. So when it's dark, it's not too bad. You can just measure it. But probably a non contact is probably the best way to measure it. Right. You know, some sort of infrared camera. Yeah, it it's seems a, like
1: we've been kind of moving away from using those dial stem thermometers well, on they, the, they just probably, to they get work, the surface. Yeah,
0: they, they work, you know, for for, for getting a uh, temperature profile and stuff.
1: Yeah. They're probably a reasonable way to go.
0: You know, if you use the problem with using, you know, if you go, let, let's go all high tech and use a thermal imager and, and do a snow pit. Well, that snow pit wall is changing really rapidly. So if you're going to do that, you've got to cut it in and, and get that measurement pretty quick because it's going to... The influencer you want but same as with the dial stem you want that to be in a shadow and stuff so mm-hmm. There's all yeah. Temperature is really a hard one, and, and, and part of that is that snow that 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 shortwave radiation does penetrate. So if you've got any solar, when you're trying to measure it with a dial stem or anything, you're now confounding it with the actual instrument. So what we generally try to do is is we'll use um, very fine thermistor wires and, and put them in, and maybe paint them white even, and and try to you know cut down on that 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 that, that influence of the shortwave radiation. So. Dial stem depends what you're looking for. If you're looking for trying to do some really specific stuff, dial stems at the surface is going to be pretty rough. But if you're just trying to know what's going on and what the temperature is, you know, and you go a little bit below it, representative you know all of this depends a lot on am i trying to do this to do some sort of assessment for um, stability and what it might be tomorrow or am i trying to do some model that i want to you know try to replicate and and how far off so it makes a difference the instrumentation always makes a difference on what you
1: want to get for it what your application is what your application and of course we always shade that wall of the snow pit when we're taking temperatures but yeah you guys are Getting a little bit more high tech than me, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, but we
0: do, we're all going at the same thing, and it's a really hard measurement. Right. No, sure. it's, it's a difficult measurement. Yeah.
1: So, Ed, what advice would you give someone who's just starting their academic career and is interested in the field of snow and avalanche science yeah. and, and avalanche mechanics?
0: Yeah, that's a tough one, you know, because um, as you're well aware, um, there aren't a lot of positions. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, there's a lot of a lot of people, a lot of really good people uh, would like to get them. What I would say, and it's kind of what, you know, I mean, um, I just wanted to do it, <laughs> you know? And, and so I just, it, but realizing out ahead there may be a dead end here, you know? And, and I've always told my grad students this, I said, you know, you gotta realize there's not a lot of positions, but what you're studying when you study snow is, as I said earlier, it's such a, it's such a um, encompassing material. And there's so many aspects of it that You should study something that gives you a broader context. You don't want to be pigeonholed as, I can do avalanche work. You want to be sure that you can do avalanche work because you understand this whole process. How does this material work? It's just a material, you know. So if you want, and if you're into into more dynamic things, how does fluid flow work? How do things work? So avalanche dynamics. So... When you're getting into it, you know, pick your topic, you know, if you can, quite likely if you're going into, say, grad school, as an undergrad, undergrad, you don't have a lot of classes that are going to be snow-related anyway. Try to pick a field that you're interested in that you think would be relevant. say so, you know, any kind of physics, engineering, geography, uh, meteorology, uh, there's a lot of fields that you can you can see what those are and which one of those appeals to you and try to follow that through. And then... When you're doing your studies, like in grad school, you're probably going to have a research project. And and make sure you understand what's going on and make that a broad enough. So if you get out the other end, and, and, wow, there's no jobs here. You still want to eat, you know. And, and you may even have to take it. You may, may do another job and keep your eye on, on the ball that you want to get back. And, you know, uh, Michigan Tech was a great deal for me it wasn't really where I wanted to be but I learned a lot and it was great and who knows I might have ended up finishing up my career there but so it's all a matter of timing and stuff so I would say you know I would go into something that really gives you a broad perspective and I would also say that if you want to do it um, do it you know just just stick with it and keep trying I I think a really um, because I I have quite a few students want to come in and do research here as students we've just done two faculty searches for this um, when you're looking through these, you see all these quality people, you know, um, it's really useful if you want to be in this, if you've got some background in the field, whether it's ski patrolling, uh, search and rescue, heli guiding. Mountaineering, Something that gives you some ba- something documented, you know, because you'll get some people that look really good. But, you know, I've always been interested in snow. I'd like to come. But then you've got somebody else who um, has a similar background. Maybe they've got their undergraduate degree in geophysics and two of them. And one of them has actually worked as a patrolman and maybe has done some guiding or, or so. you know, something that gives you some, a little step up. But that's what you want to do anyway. I mean, so you ought to stay involved. It's just good, you know, join search and rescue. Be part of search and rescue. do something that that, that sort of gives you a little bump if you're going for um, a, a new position, say that that you're opening up. Like like Mark, you know, Staples. He, you know, he was here. He's he's an engineer and and. Um, you know, he that he, he for time he was doing some stuff. He was, I think, specking out, you know, um, uh, in the summertime, septic systems and stuff, you know, something could do is he had some background in he, or he could figure out, you know. Mm-hmm. But he stayed in the field, he was working in the Avalanche Center and and then got this next so those kind of things happen. And if you're if you're if you're in the more academic where you actually end up getting into a faculty position, which in itself is you know, hard to get into because there's not that many of those relative to other people coming through the system. I think you have to kind of, what I was saying earlier, you have to be willing to um, work towards what your goals are and, and, and encompass a larger field. I mean, that's kind of what I've tried to do. And so I have something, maybe studying highways for a while. Later on, I got funded for doing it on snow and the highways I didn't have to deal with. that i i say that in a pejorative way but not dealing with the highways was a bad thing i learned a lot and it was really good stuff i mean you know, i talking about icing when i'm driving over bozeman pass i'm really pleased that somebody's spending some time looking at that you know mm-hmm. but it's not it was my 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 deal was i wanted to get back in the mountains. so so make that stuff and, and work different Hi, snow hydrology is a is a big area you know and i think particularly with climate change and all this stuff going on What's changing? So as we as we start to use uh, new instrumentation, new methodologies, um, as as we start to. Um you know, GIS is going to become really big. And so those kind of fields would be really useful because GIS, you can map all these different, you know, somebody working over in earth science may have input and somebody over in, in geophysics has another one and, earth, and engineering, and then you start to overlap the, I think that's going to be an important thing to get into. So something that's kind of encompassing, and I would say, yeah, i try to have some some, mer- some something that shows that, yeah, you've really worked and you've been trying to get into this field because that's tight. And you've done the work, you've, you know, you've, you've been a patrolman, you've been a whatever, you know, and I think that's a, a big plus. And if you're trying to get funding, you know, now you're talking to the National Science Foundation as a new faculty member, maybe, you want to be able to roll those things in, what can I get, and you've got, to be, you've got to be willing to do the work, to get the background, to, you know, um, you know I, mean, I, I did a, these seasons in the Antarctic were great fun, but it's because I had some background in snow and I, but I could I could morph that over because you know it's just ice you know a little different form and and so it's really to be able to plus it's fun it's fun to be able to you know as much as I like playing in snow I mean that was very cool you know and we worked on Mount St. Helens you know back when it blew up and flew into the crater and stuff you know that was all cool stuff, but it all kind of segue it had to do with snow and there's just lots of things that you can do but you've got to keep. You
1: got to be flexible, I think, if you want to stay in in the game. That seems like really good advice, Ed. And so recently, you've retired from your I professor have. position here at MSU, and I think in the beginning of the interview, you said when you you came back here, if if you if you know if you left at the end of your career um, with making some contributions and kind of keeping the lights on in here, then you'd be happy. And and I'm sure it's it's very evident that you've had a big influence on the. Um, all the students that have come through here, I'm sure, as well as made some significant contributions to the Avalanche community and, and other, other fields of study as well. So, um, thanks for all that you've done uh, for the whole community. Oh, thanks and, and, um, and thanks for taking the time to oh, you sit got, down and interview. And, us and I do today. want to
0: say, uh, MSU's got Kevin Hammonds and mm-hmm. uh, Chris Borstad are coming in and they're going to take this to a whole nother level. So, uh, you know, keep in touch.
1: <laughs> right on. Well, thanks, Ed. It's been a pleasure and uh, have a great day. All right, you too. Cheers. Thank you. Well, I sure do hope you enjoyed that interview with Ed Adams. Ed, thanks again for taking the time to chat with me and thanks for all the contributions. To our community, both the scientific and the practitioner community within the avalanche world. Thanks to you, my listeners. If you're enjoying the show, tell a friend. If you have any feedback for the show, reach out to me. Let me know what you think. Send me an email at theavalanchehourpodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com. Don't forget to sh- follow us on the socials. We are at the avalanche Hour podcast. Our music today was performed by Ketza and the opening track was Night Flying and this track you're listening to right now is Greener Grass. Those tracks are made possible by the Creative Commons license and can be found at freemusicarchive.org. Check out more of Ketza's tracks there. Thanks to Mike T for our artwork. You demand T. Until next time, stay tuned Stay safe and keep having fun out there. Cheers.